Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Shark, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and I hope you've enjoyed our creation seminar series so far because we are on the last episode, the last session, session eight of our creation seminar series. This one is also going to deal again with some problems with Darwinian evolution. Once again, if you want to see the visuals and uh, PowerPoints that go with this lesson, you can check out the video recording that we're also releasing on the same day on our YouTube, Facebook, and Rumble channels. As always, this program is made possible by generous donors just like you. If you'd like to help support our ministry and help keep this program free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And with that, here is Michael Lane in Embryological Similarities, Homologous Structures, and Vestigial Organs, More Problems for Darwinian Evolution. Well, good morning, y'all. Glad to see you here. And as we've been going through some different things this, this weekend on evidence that the, the Word of God is true and problems with Darwinian evolution and, and all sorts of things, I want to tackle three things this morning. We just got done doing about dinosaurs because that's a big hang-up for a lot of people. That they can't believe in the Word of God because dinosaurs don't appear in the Bible, the word dinosaur. So we just got done talking about that this morning, that the word dinosaur wasn't even invented until 1841, so of course you're not going to see it in there. Just like you don't see airplane, aspirin, hemorrhoids, or anything like that. I guess. <laughs> don't know where they came from. That just slipped out. <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble here already. <laughs> Can we start this over? <laughs> but anyway, um, no, what we are is um, we're, we were created beings. And the word of God, Jesus is the creator. If you never caught that, read just the first opening verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And when you get there, and just read through that, um, then go to Colossians, chapter 1. Then go to Hebrews, chapter 1. All three of those, three times, God specifically says Jesus is creating. He's not like, as some deists would say, that he... Um, caused a big bang and then just walked away and let everything run. Um, no, that is not what it is. It's, he's constantly intervening. Matter of fact, Jesus even comes in the Old Testament at certain times and has an, an incarnate appearance, sometimes called the, the angel of God. I'm not going to go into that too much, but um, then he comes in the incarnate uh, that we celebrate for Christmas, and he, he dwells among us. The word um, that's, that's talked about, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is the same word that is used for tabernacle. Tabernacle means to dwell with. And so Jesus is the dwelling God who came and spoke to us. And, and not only that, he died for us. And the whole salvation story, why did Jesus have to die? It's because of sin. Sin entered God's creation. God created everything perfect, and then we messed up. It was supposed to be perfection. We're all living together. We mess up. Sin enters this picture, and not only sin, when sin comes in, death came in. There was no death prior to this. The earth is not billions of years old because that goes totally against Christian theology because Christ, as it says in Romans, had to come to conquer death, which is the result of sin. 
not predator-prey relationships or anything like that. God wouldn't call predator-prey relationships as he's creating in the days of creation. Oh, boy, Roadrunner finally caught the coyote. That's good. Um, oh, boy, look at how this animal, these coyotes are totally tearing apart this, this uh, deer or something. He wouldn't call that good. But Darwinian evolution is run on death. If you think about it, and as we were here this, this weekend talking about, and as I was explaining, Darwinian evolution basically runs on death. It's eliminating certain parts of the gene pool that are weakened, survival of the fittest, if you will. Matter of fact, Darwin in his book, The Origin of the Species, talks all about this type of thing. So what are we actually? We are created in God's image, as, as it says. Matter of fact, there's two great books. Actually, Daryl put me onto these books back a long time ago, um, many years ago. He talked about these books in, in a sermon, and as soon as he said that, I went and I ordered them. Great books, In His Image and Fearfully, Wonderfully Made by Paul, Dr. Paul Brand, Philip Yancey. Love these books. You want some good books written by a physician showing how uh, special created we are? Two great books that you can get hold of um, and, and read. They're very easy to read, um, and they're excellent on this. But the Word of God is so special, and the thing is, I was raised in a Christian church that the Bible was very important to. I was raised in a Christian family that, that taught me creationism. And so I believed, I grew up believing in the six days, literal days of creation. That's what I grew up with. Then I went to a Christian university where I was convinced because of professors telling me you can't trust the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Oh, trust the Bible, but don't trust the first 11 chapters of Genesis because it's written in allegory and metaphors. You can't trust it. Well, that was our lesson yesterday afternoon, how incorrect that is. And so I got brainwashed because I was so naive as a college student, I, I did not question my professors. What is amazing to me is I even studied using, as a, I am a biologist by trade, and looking in its slides under the microscope, and I'm seeing things, and I'm looking at observations of slides, which I'm gonna show you some things here in a little bit, not using this, but on PowerPoint, but showing you some different things that I just took as, it, 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 deep in my brain, I, I figured something's not right, but the professors must know what they're talking about, and I just swallowed everything hook, line, and sinker, just like a catfish on a piece of bait. And that's what happened. And I'm not alone. Most Christian universities teach Darwinian evolution is the way that God created. We call it, they won't call it that, they call it theistic evolution, using the word theos for God. Theistic evolution. God used evolution to create things. And that's what this whole weekend has been about, me trying to disprove that whole thing. But I want to focus this morning on three aspects talking with colleagues and friends of mine over the years that have been in the same boat as I am. We, we grew up in Christian homes. Uh, we grew up believing creationism, and then we walked away. What was it that, that did it? And one person in particular, as I was talking to him, um, he said that it was uh, these different things found in the textbooks that started to sway him. Well, the thing is, we're reading the wrong textbook. Because what we should be looking at is something like this in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Think about this. Knitted me? Does this talk about something that started billions of years ago in a first cell and it just kept evolving? No. This is talking about God doing knitting. He's putting things together. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful of your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes 
saw my unformed substance. This is talking about a creator God. This is not something that God just started in motion and let it go. And if you study the human body, it is amazing the way that it is put together, not just the human body, all animal lives and stuff, and even plants. I'm, I'm not a botanist. I really don't, I'm not thrilled about botany a lot of times, but I am amazed by looking at botanical substances and, and, and tissues and, and things under a microscope because I see the handiwork of God. God gave me the eyes of a biologist to be able to see his handiwork through everything. It just blows my mind. But back in college, no. We had some people that would teach us different things. And one of them that got a lot of people, and particularly this one friend of mine, when I asked him, what made you no longer believe in creation but believe in Darwinian evolution? He said, in the textbook, there's pictures of embryos and how the embryos all look alike. If you have been in a biology book recently, you have seen pictures like this. This is figure one from one, or figure 15 from one of the books that we, we use and stuff. And, and um, this is actually from a, more of a, a lower level uh, biology course, like a um, upper middle school textbook. And what they're doing is they're showing that we have uh, very similar um, embryos. And then as time goes on, we start to develop. Now, what does this mean? If you've been puzzled by this, let me explain this very simply to you, what's happening. In our DNA, According to Darwinian evolution, in our DNA, with our genes um, all placed through here, these nitrogen-based pairs, what happens is, according to evolution, we started off with just a few genes, the first cell. But as time went on, over billions of years, new genes were being added by random chance mutation, being added to our DNA that benefited the organism. The thing is, there is no evidence of this whatsoever. When you hear of a mutation, you guys were just praying for some mutations. Cancer. Who's going to call cancer beneficial? Mutations are not beneficial. But Darwinian evolution, this whole thing of Darwinian evolution is based upon mutations and these, that random chance mutations are added to the genome. And then what happens is if, if they're weakened, if there's something wrong, the natural selection takes them out and kills them. Death runs this thing. Well, the problem is, according to this idea here with these charts, that since we, uh, vertebrates and stuff, we have been on the planet for so many millions and billions of years, we have so many genes in our DNA that still date back, still have all the parts from when we were like, you know, sea stars, or say, for instance, um, uh, grasshoppers, or different species of worms, that the genes are in here, but they are turned off in all of us sitting here today. No matter who you're sitting next to, they are not a worm. No matter what you're going to call them, they're not a worm. It's not a fish, <laughs> okay? They're, but that's what this is. This is talking about that those genes are still in our DNA, and they got turned off. And at a time, though, when, when the embryo and an egg gets fertilized, what happens is those genes are activated. Thus, all of the embryos are going to look exactly alike. But as time, as the embryo starts to grow, those early genes start to shut down, and the other ones that are making us, in our case, homo sapiens, humans, start to turn on, and we start to change our shape. Do you understand now what I'm talking about here? Okay? That's what it's like. So as they start off, they all have the same similar genes all turned on, showing that that's how they develop. So at one point, they'll say, oh, we had gills. Do you see the flaps up there? Many textbooks will say, right in them, that at one point, as embryos, we all had gills. You never had gills. They're not gills. Yet 
I never questioned this. Even when I'm looking under the slides under the microscope, I never questioned this. But I was told these were gills. They're not gills. Here's another picture from the Holt Reinhardt Winston biology book, 1998, which was a bestseller. Uh, it was a very popular textbook in the United States in high schools. And you can see here's the same type of thing. Here's the embryos. And you have to admit, I'll admit, that top row, they look very similar. They do. They're hard to distinguish. But as you keep going down, you can see a human, a rabbit, a chicken, a tortoise, fish. It becomes, those genes are now turning on, and the other ones are turning off. That's how this whole thing works. And they use this as evolution to promote Darwinian evolution, that this is how we developed. And they use this in every single textbook just about. You're going to come across, you're going to see a chapter, evidence for not to believe, really what it's saying, evidence not to believe in the Bible, but to believe in a science textbook is because of this. And this has swayed so many, a friend of mine in particular, but so many people have been swayed by this illustration and illustrations like this that they have totally lost faith in the Bible. Let's read something from a biology textbook talking about this. It says, this is the Miller-Levine um, textbook I think I'm using here at this point, quote, in the late 19th century, scientists noticed that the embryos of many different animals looked so similar that it was difficult to tell them apart. Similarities in early development indicate that similar genes are at work. All genes in an organism are not active at the same time. But those that are active during the early development of fish, birds, humans, and related animals are the shared heritage of a common ancestor. As they grow and develop, the embryos gradually become more and more dissimilar. These differences in form are caused by genes that have changed during the course of evolution. Miller and Levine biology textbook, the number one selling textbook in the country. In high school, public school biology, and probably even some Christian schools still use this. That's what is promoted also in here, common ancestor. We have a common ancestor, we all break, come back to one organism. That's what this is talking about. And this is one of their major pieces of evidence that they use for years. I mean, this is so sad, it's so sickening in some cases, because this is totally against what the Bible says. But that's where you see these charts. These charts pop up here, and we see this kind of stuff, and we're thinking, oh, well, this is out of a science textbook. I can't question that. And we put this not only in the, this is a high school book. How about this one? This is in a middle-aged, middle school book. You still see the same thing. We have a picture down here. They've reversed the order. Down here is the embryos, and as they develop, you can see the different things. And as they start to go on, the different genes turn off, others turn on. You can see we all come from a common ancestor. This has swayed so many people to walk away from the faith of God to the faith in the Bible, to the faith that Jesus is a creator God, that he made us individually in his image. I don't think Jesus was ever a monkey or an ape-like creature. But if, if you're going to follow this reasoning, that's what he would be too. There's something seriously wrong here. Now, where did this come from? It's said in the 1800s, yes. During the 1800s, around the 1860s, Darwin published his book, Origin of Species by Natural Selection. Um, there were a lot of people who did not like thinking about God as a creator. They, many scientists were against the whole idea of creation to begin with in the 1800s. They didn't want anything, but they didn't have much evidence to support it. One such guy was a, name, uh, a scientist. He was a German named Ernst Haeckel. 
Urs Haeckel was an atheist. He hated the Bible. He hated Christians. He hated Jews. And so he came up with, an, after reading Darwin's book, I'm going to help Darwin out. I'm going to write a book that adds evidence to this. And so he wrote a book called Anthropogeny. And what he did, according to his book, what he did, and this is where this all stems from. This is the beginning of what I'm just showing you here. This is how it started. He, using his primitive microscope, now they didn't have cameras. They had to do art drawings, and most of the time it was woodcuts. So you would draw something, and then for publishing, you would do a woodcut of the thing and then stamp it, and that's what you would use. So he is, this is actually a page from his book, an actual photograph of his book, Anthropogeny, Ernst Haeckel, 1877. So this is right after Darwin's stuff. And he is showing how these embryos are very similar. Will you not admit with me that these all look extremely similar? They do. Yet, as then the genes turn off and others turn on, we start getting the differentiation of the different species and different animal forms. This is compelling evidence for Darwinian evolution. They use this in the textbooks. This has swayed many people. There's a problem with it. It's not true. I myself, as a biologist, looking at slides under the microscope of, say, for instance, like a, a turtle or something, or a pig embryo or something, I would look at something that was supposed to be at this stage, at that age, and it didn't look like that on my slide. Well, I must have done the slide wrong, and there must be something wrong with my slide, because mine doesn't look like that, but I never questioned it. I should have. Because that's not right. And finally, we got, believe it or not, now this was in 1877. It was in 1994, a bunch of British entomologists, people who specialize in embryology, study of embryos and stuff, in the UK, they decided, they finally said, you know, something's just not right with this in these charts that we have in this book. So what they did is they went back and they took with not, now modern microscopy, modern cameras, and they took pictures duplicating what Urs Haeckel said that he took pictures of at that time period, and he took pictures of them. Up here is Haeckel's drawings. This is actually what it looks like. Now, you're not going to see this in the book. Why? None of these look exactly the same. They're all different. As a matter of fact, in Haeckel's original work, his artwork that he did in his lab, still has been preserved, Science, the same scientists took a look at it, and they looked at it under electron microscopy, and they noticed in the, in the woodcuts the grains of the wood, and they noticed something that they didn't expect. Haeckel actually used the exact same woodcuts, just tweaking them a little bit to make the same image to try and show you that they are all evolving from the common ancestor. He faked the image. This is what he said, and yes, Stephen caught it, this is what Haeckel said a fish looked like at so many days of its embryo stage. This is what it really looks like. He said, this is what a salamander looks like. That one must be pregnant. This is what this, this I mean, gosh, does this look like that? And, of course, we many times are told, well, these are gill slits. No, they're not. Those little lobes that you do see, you do see little, little flabs of tissue here. And, yes, they, they exist, but those are not gills. You never had gills. How many times I've come up with people who say, well, at one point we had gills. You never had gills. Gills are a respiratory organ for obtaining oxygen out of water. That's not what these are. These lobes, some of these lobes become your um, pectoral girdle. Others become a pelvic girdle. Other be one lobe becomes your liver. Another lobe becomes um, eventually your lung tissue and stuff. That's what those things are. They're not gills. They're flaps of tissue of developmental tissue. 
This whole thing is a total fraud. The whole cotton-picking thing is faked. Why? Because Haeckel wanted to give Darwin some evidence to help support his theory because he hated the idea of God in creation, so Haeckel faked the entire thing. And it wasn't until 1994 that it was proven. And that wasn't that long ago. I remember when this came out. I got a hold of the paper from the UK and read this, and I was like, oh my gosh, now this all makes sense to me. No, the whole thing is, what did God do? He created kinds of animals. Not one common thing and let it branch off. He created kinds. Genesis 1, 21 and 25. Out of the New American Standard, it says this, which is a word-for-word translation. And God created the great sea monsters. Ooh, we just got done. And every living creature that moves. Doesn't say one. He's talking about making different creatures, which with the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird of after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God is making different kinds of organisms. He didn't do Darwinian evolution. He didn't do theistic evolution. He didn't start off with one thing and just let it grow and evolve throughout time. No, that goes totally against the word of God. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth, and after their kind, and after the cattle, their kind, everything that creeps on the ground, after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God made different kinds of animals, which totally goes against this book, and totally goes against this book. Yet we swallow it, because we don't want to question professors. Do you know that according to its kind, according to their kinds, is mentioned ten times in Genesis 1, and each time it's saying that, that is going totally against this theory. Why don't we see this? I too, I fell for it, because I never questioned it. I'm not going to question a professor. As a college student, an undergrad, I mean, they're practically like a semi-god. You know, you, you have to listen to what they say, and they're smart. They've got degrees and stuff. <laughs> Some of them didn't even know about this. So that's one way. That's one way that many people I know of have totally walked away from the Bible just because of this. And what's so sad about it? It's all a fraud. It's a faked piece of data that is still found in biology books. Though I will tell you, and this is good news, many publishers are now saying, get this out. Don't print this anymore because when people find out and are hearing about this now being a fraud, so some of the most modern textbooks, you will not find those pictures in them anymore because of what happened with the, the UK study in 94. Isn't that interesting? You can still find it in some, though, but some college textbooks that I have have now removed it. Okay, problem number two. As I said, there's three things I want to talk about. Problem number two that has led so many people away from the Word of God. I'm talking about Darwinian evolution and versus creationism. And it has to do with a, uh, a term that we call homogeneous structures. Now, don't let the name scare you. It's a very easy thing. You've all been, uh, if you've watched anything on PBS or any of these dinosaur shows or anything uh, talking that is by uh, uh, Darwinian evolution based, you hear about this all the time. They, they talk about this. We are um, just flooded with this information all the time, subtly, so subtly that we don't even realize we're getting brainwashed at the time. But that's what this is. And what we're talking about are similar structures. For instance, out of a textbook, here we go, these are different uh, arm appendages. And this is another whole section in a biology book that they will tell you not to believe in the Word of God. You're going to believe in biology because we are science, we are truth. <laughs> is there anything more changing than 
science. Constantly, every week, I watch stuff like this. Every week, there's a new science discovery showing that we were wrong on something we just published before. So, as we were saying, you have the different structures here of the different bones. And because different animals, uh, humans, cats, lizards, frogs, whales, bats, and birds, all have the exact um, name of bones that do the same thing, even down to the phalanges down here, the carpal bones and stuff, they say, see, this is evidence that we all evolve from one creature. We have a common ancestor. The Bible's incorrect. We all came from a common ancestor. Now, I want to clear up one thing that people often uh, say incorrectly. That Darwin said that we evolved from apes. That is not true. Read the book. He never says that. We came from an ape-like creature. They're still trying to figure out what that is. Yeah, good luck. But here we see similarities in body structure that we call this homogeneous structures. Science, we always put difficult terms to make it sound smart. So similarities in body structure is what this is talking about. And here's what it states, again, in biology textbooks. In the embryos of many animals, the clumps of cells that develop into limbs look quite similar. But as embryos mature, the limbs grow into arms, wings, legs, flippers that differ greatly in form and function. Okay, that's the definition that you're seeing here. And it continues in this biology book, these different forelimbs evolved in a series of evolutionary changes that altered the structure and the appearance of the arm and the leg bones in ancient animals. Structures such as these that developed from the same body parts are called homogeneous structure. Again, that's right out of Miller-Levine um, biology textbook. So they're saying that, and here, if you sit and just take this without any type of critical thinking, well, here's a humerus bone, there's a humerus bone, there's a humerus bone, there's a humerus bone. Oh, here's a, uh, a radius, there's a radius, there's a radius, there's a radius, there's an ulna, there's an ulna, there's an ulna, there's an ulna. Uh, here's the carpals, 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 phalanges, 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 phalanges. Wow, this makes sense. Really? I don't think so. Darwin devoted an entire chapter of a book that he called The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, to sex largely to the idea that humans share common descent from apes and other animals. He says this in his book. And he built a whole thing just on this. He built his case mostly, and this is how Darwin did it, because they didn't have electron microscopy and stuff. They didn't have molecular biology or biochemistry like that that we have today. So he's having to use comparative anatomy, and that's what he uses to build his theory. Very primitive way of doing it, but that's what they had in the 1800s. Um, it was Louis Pasteur that started more of a scientific revolution upon this using microscopy and things. But Darwin didn't have this. and They didn't understand genes. If you remember history, Gregor Mendel with his pea plants and stuff, they were just, that's at the same time. They're just starting to understand a little bit about heredity. Darwin couldn't use heredity because that science hadn't been developed yet. So he's using comparative anatomy to show how evolution took place, to build his theory. Um, comparing the anatomy of one kind of animal with another is supposed to prove the descent of a common ancestor. It's often put forth in every biology book as extremely strong evidence for Darwinian evolution. However, science of comparative anatomy can just as easily be used as evidence for creation. This doesn't, I look at this today, this doesn't remind me of Darwinian evolution, of 
common ancestor, descent from a common ancestor, what I see, I see a designer that's using the same type of design over and over. And you know what? We have evidence of that all around us. If we walked out in the parking lot right now, we're probably going to see a lot of vehicles. Guess what? I bet every one of those vehicles didn't start, oh, let's make a, a new type of car. Well, how many wheels should we have? Let's do seven. Why seven? Well, I don't know. Let's do seven. Okay. How many steering wheels? Well, you usually hear about phrases of someone in the front seat and the back seat. Let's put one on each. You know. No, they don't do that. They don't do that. They use a basic plan. Four wheels works out good. If you watch Mr. Bean, three wheels never turns out good. If you have no idea what I meant there, never mind. <laughs> I love Mr. Bean. But anyway, this, I see this as evidence for creation. I look at something like this, I see, yes, there's similar bones, but not all bones are similar. You look at these things, look at the carpals, look at the, the radius. I mean, all of these, even the humerus bone of a, of a whale to a human, that doesn't look alike. There's problems with this. Now, let me show you this from a different textbook. The presence of homogeneous structures can actually be interpreted as evidence for a common designer. Contrary to the oversimplification claim in this figure, the forelimbs of vertebrates do not form in the same way. In other words, the end of the arm is not forming the same way in all organisms. It continues, specifically, in frogs, talking about the phalanges, the development of the phalanges, the fingers of a frog, they form as buds. If you make a fist with your hand, you see the little knuckle parts sticking up, little buds. These buds grow outward in a frog. They grow out, forming the fingers. In humans, instead, we don't have buds like that. We have one big bud, and furrows develop from out and come in. It goes the exact opposite is what this is saying. This saying here, as buds grow outward, and in humans they form a ridge that develops pharaohs inward. The fact that bones can be correlated does not mean they are evidence of a single common ancestor. The reason I'm giving you this, this is a college text by Johnson and Raven Biology. It's a college text, but do you notice what they just said here? It's absolutely amazing. This is not evidence, this is really not evidence for Darwinian evolution. That, to me, does not mean evidence for a common ancestor. They're actually giving you the correct thing. So even in this college text, they're giving the correct answer. It's not in this, but Johnson and Raven actually said the, the right thing here, that that is not evidence. Comparative anatomy is not. So I'm giving you out of even non-Christian source here. In fact, there is another logical reason why things look alike creation. It was created by an intelligent designer who used a common blueprint. Don't we do this? I don't know if there's any engineers in here, but don't you use basically the same type of plans in building a building? Do you ever think, well, I think this time let's build a roof first. Or let's make one wall and then we'll make the roof. Well, no, there's a common plan that you use. That's the reason Toyotas and Fords, if we walk out in the parking lot here, they look similar, but the thing is, they didn't evolve from, uh, from totally different entities, from different ancestors. They all basically go back to like what Ford originally made with the first automobile. And we go back to the simple design. It's a common plan. 
So I look at stuff like this, and I've had people say, well, this makes perfect sense to me that, you know, that uh, this shows evolution. No, it doesn't. It just shows. I see it as a common design. And God is a designer. That was one of the first lessons we did this weekend. God is a design. I showed you with the microscope, different designs on the molecular level even, that there is a design. If there's a design, there's a designer. If there's a designer, there is a God. One discovery that appears to make this evolutionary view of descent from a common ancestor look illogical and flawed are that the structures that appear homogenous often are controlled by genes that are not homogenous. In other words, on the DNA, according to this whole thing, the DNA of our ancestors are coded in here. But what we have found out on different chromosomes, on say the chromosome number three will be for making a, an ulnar bone, but it might be on another animal, uh, it might be on chromosome number seven. It's not always gonna be the same like that. There's all sorts of problems with this theory that without critical thinking, you're just gonna skip over and miss. If the structures evolve from the same source, wouldn't you expect them to be on the same gene? in the same location, it doesn't do that. Another problem with homogenous structures, where's the fossils showing this? Where are the fossils that show what Darwin said when he was, when Darwin wrote this, there were hardly any fossils. Now, he wrote in here, he actually writes, if my theory is gonna be proved correctly, the fossil evidence will show it. And he expected to live long enough to see this happening. He wrote this in the 1860s. We're still waiting to get one fossil link from, say, like an earthworm to a grasshopper. We still don't have it. People talk about, oh, we have transitional fossils. No, we don't. They don't exist. They're not there. That evidence is lacking. Stephen Jay Gould, I used this quote earlier this weekend. Stephen Jay Gould, probably the greatest biologist, arguably the greatest biologist of the 20th century, actually acknowledged this. He wrote... The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils." Unquote. What's he saying? The fossil record, which is supposed to show that we came from one cell till we get to the most complex human creature on the planet today, the human female, when you go that's a compliment. When you go and have all these different life forms from bacteria to fungis to protists to um, plants to algaes, you get to the, um, finally start getting into the animal forms, nadarians, uh, platyomenthus worms, nematode worms, uh, anelidid uh, worms, you get to uh, arthropods, et cetera. Finally, you get to, to fish, uh, you get to the amphibians, you get to the reptiles, um, and you, know, you get up to mammals, that you would see all these fossils showing all these transitions. And they often say the fossil record shows. Stephen Jay Gould, greatest biologist, evolutionist, said, no, we don't have them. We only have fossils at the end of the things. We don't have anything showing the transition. To be honest, I don't think Darwin would accept this theory today. Because I'll tell you, nothing has been searched for harder than these transitional fossils in science in the last 150 years. I don't think he would believe his theory. According to what he wrote, he says, if the fossil record does not bear this out, my theory is void, it's got to be gone. I don't think he would believe it today. Here's one, well, well, Michael, then why do they keep teaching this? 
Oh my gosh, this, this is hilarious. Many times when I go to places or at universities or whatever, they're going to use the whale evolution as evidence for Darwinian evolution. Whale evolution. Now, we all know whales have a spout hole back behind uh, the apex of their head area where they breathe. But the early whales, they say, had a snout very similar to a dog. The nose was at the apex, at the, at the very anterior end. And so there is a fossil showing, I think, I'm not making this up, this is an early whale fossil. Here's where the nose is. Now, here is a beluga whale today. Here's where the nose is, the nostrils are here. Notice that it's moved quite a ways back. Here's the thing, as Gould was saying, we have no transitional forms to prove this. So what we're doing is we're guessing, we're making inference. That was the whole thing that Louis Pasteur, a Bible-believing Christian scientist, probably the greatest scientist of the 1800s, had against Darwinian evolution. He says, you have no evidence to back this up. It's all guesswork, as he used the word inference. The same word Stephen Jay Gould used. It's inference. We don't have anything to back this up. But let me just show you really quickly how they, they say L, uh, whales evolved. This is the early whale. This is out of science textbook. There's your early whale, not much bigger than this table. Okay, you can see the comparative anatomy of how they fit together perfectly, right? <laughs> right. So here's a beluga, there's our early whale. Like this evolved into that, right. So, uh, and even to uh, another whale. That, oh yes, you can see the similarities here, right. Let me show you this. This is the, um, the evolution of a whale from textbooks. I'm borrowing this from Answers in Genesis because they've compiled it really neatly. Um, I want you to notice if you can see it, it's going to give you the age, the picture in the age. This is 60 million years ago. Here's our early whale. Yeah. Whales are mammals. They got fur. This one has a lot of fur. Long skinny tail, four big, I mean, look at the hind leg. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's at 60 million years. In 10 million years, by 50 million years, well, they've changed a little bit. They don't look quite the same. And by the way, they start drawing pieces on here, and you're going to tell me there's no bias on some of these drawings? They're trying to prove that this thing turned into a whale, so the artist is drawing things to make it look like that. Um, here's a picture from, I noticed uh, in one magazine that I was reading one time, showing the early whale. It was an article about the early whale and um, how it hunted. That's our early whale. Uh-huh. Taken down like, a, I don't know, an ox or something. Um, but that's the early whale. Just look at the legs. And the tail is not fluted at the end. It looks like what we'd generally just call a mammal, a land mammal. Does that look anything like that? No, of course not. Now, let's go another 10 million years. Now we're at 40 million years ago. Notice now we've got a fluted tail here. We got flukes. Where is the fossil evidence showing the fluke? There's no bones going out into that fluke. What evidence do they have for it? Absolutely none. It's an artist's impression. It's an artist's bias putting a fluke to the end of this. Notice the, the bones here. The legs have totally changed in 10 million years. Here we have a modern orca. And they'll say, oh, but see the little part here? I had this just not too long ago. This, this summer, somebody said this to me. You see the little bones here? That's evidence that they used to have leg bones. Those are totally useless today. They're leftovers of evolution. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Leftovers of evolution? No, they're not. Because you know what those are? Those are attachment points for things like the digestive system, the reproductive system, et cetera. 
You just can't have those systems just floating around in your body. They have to be attached to some type of skeletal muscle for contraction. There have to be there. They were never legs. If you take this out of the whale, that whale's going to be in a bad case because now it can't even go to the bathroom normally. Because we go to the bathroom, this is graphic, but if you go to the bathroom, you apply some pressure. Try and do that with just no, uh, no muscles attached to skeleton. It's a little difficult to do all these things. We have skeletal muscle attached. Reproduction to push the whale out, same thing. You have to have some muscles like this. I see the same thing with snakes. People come up to me and they see snakes don't have legs. But if you look at the skeleton at the back end of the leg, you know, towards the, the uh, posterior end, you'll see little, little bones there. See, those are leftover legs. No, those are attachment points for muscles to be able to do bodily functions and for reproduction. <sighs> Creationists and intelligent design scientists see the exact same thing. They'll call it one thing based upon their theory. We see it as creationists. I see it a totally different way, in a way that makes sense. I'm not using inference. I'm using scientific data to show you you need those kind of bones and stuff. You need to have this kind of thing. Drawing flukes and stuff, that is inference. I see a long tail. That that early whale, I don't think it's an early whale. I think it's just an extinct mammal of some sort. So, remember, God created kinds, kinds of animals. I mean, take a dog. We talked about this briefly yesterday. Scientists have found out if you take a wolf, do you know that you can breed every species of dog or every subspecies, every breed of a dog you can get from the genetics of a wolf? They've done the same thing with cats. They've done the same thing with horses. If you take a special type of horse, the, the wolf is the most important one because that was the first one that was done like this. They took a wolf, they studied the genetics, and they were able to uh, find all the genes for making up from the wolf to the coyote to, I mean, look at all the different breeds of dogs. Holy cow, there are so many just strange dogs that are out there and stuff like this. And you can make everything all from the genetics of a, a wolf if you have one, with the exception maybe of a chihuahua or a poodle. I'm not sure those are really dogs. No, they are. But you could build it all. Why? Because God told Noah, go get a kind of wolf, put it on the ark, because everything will be able to be developed from that by, uh, by breeding. We enhance it with dogs and horses and cats to make more breeds, but we're enhancing what God already set into motion. Let's get to the last one. Another problem. This one I just got the other day. I was speaking to a, a Bible-believing Christian, and... He's a, he's a teacher, and uh, we got talking about the Bible, and I asked him, do you believe that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God and inerrant, no errors in it? And he says, oh, yeah, that's what I, I believe, that's what I teach. And I said, okay, I'm just curious. What's your take on Genesis 1 through 11? Ooh, I wish you didn't ask me that. I go, why? He says, I don't know. You just contradicted yourself, I said. He says, what do you mean? I said, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that's, is that not in your Bible? Yeah. Then what makes you think that it's not true? And he had to think for a minute, and he, as we talked more, I said, what is it that has made you doubt the first 11 chapters of Genesis? What is it? Well, we talked a little bit about the yom and the day thing, which was one of our presentations. They taped this, so you'll be able to pick that up if you weren't here. But... 
he came to this one. He says, I guess the thing that really convinced me was when I'm in college, I was in college, I was shown about vestigial organs. And he says, that's what really hit me, the presence of vestigial organs. Now, for those of you who do not know what vestigial organs are, I, you all know what these are probably. You've heard about it, maybe never in this term. Here's the definition out of a biology textbook. Some homogeneous structures, things we've just been talking about, have no apparent use today. They're called vestigial, leftovers. A part of an organism with little or no function that had a function in the ancestral past. In other words, with Darwin's tree going through all the life, back when you were fish or something, you needed this, but today as, as homo sapien humans, we don't need this anymore. But you still carry some of these things. They talk about this in these biology books. They list many uh, organs that are no longer serving a function in us, and so they're leftovers. This is what vestigial organs are. They're leftovers from your previous evolutionary ancestors that you're just carrying along. And yeah, this, this is really gets interesting here as we go into this. Vestigial organs, like other homogeneous structures, are indicators of biological history and thus offer further evidence for evolution. Asking about life, this is a college text, and it's saying that this is solid evidence that Darwinian evolution is true. And this is a modern book, 2001, and they still teach this. Now, is it true? According to this guy, this is what messed him up, this Bible teacher. This is what messed him up. And I, had to, I sat there with him, and I started discussing this, and he says, oh, I never, I never saw it from that light. But here we go. How do we get this? In 1895, remember Jar Darwin published his book in the 1860s. So within 30 years, a German anatomist, Robert Widersheim, published a book called The Structure of Man, an Index to His Past. Now right there, just, just stop. An Index to His Past History. What is that telling you? We're talking Darwinian evolution. So this is a supporter of Darwinian evolution. In this book, he notes 86 organs, vestigial organs, leftovers from previous ancestors found in humans. 86 of them he lists in this book. That has gone on to this day. They still put this in biology books today. You'll find, like I just showed you, it's still in these books. They use this as evidence. Robert Watershine's uh, book was also used in the Darwinian Evolution Scopes trial back in Tennessee, where evolution was put on trial, and they made a movie, it's a fictional movie, um, something about the wind, Spencer Tracy movie, um, all about that. It's, don't, don't watch that movie and think that's historical fact, it's not. But they used that in the Darwin Scope trial back in, I think it was in the 1920s in Tennessee. The, the vestigial organs was a major part of the case proving evolution. That's what I'm trying to get across here. Vestigial organs was definitive proof in this trial that Darwinian evolution is true. Now. In 1990, let's get up with some modern science now. We have biochemistry, we have molecular biology, we have microbiology, we can study things more closely, we have electron microscopy, we have other types of microscopy, we have modern science. They have re-examined this, and in 1990, this was totally refuted in a book called Vestigial Organs Are Fully Functional. Let me just give you a couple of examples when we'll be done here in just a minute, because we're getting short on time. A Couple of organs that people, and this is what this guy told me, they always name the appendix, they name the tonsils, the coccyx bone, they say, how many of you have heard, our coccyx bone is left over from when we had a tail? You've heard that before? That's where this comes from. Uh, the thymus gland, the spleen, 
These, they say, are leftovers from evolution, and they don't really bear any use for us today. They're just leftovers. Given another million years, they'll just be totally gone. Yeah, right. Well, they do have important functions. Um, now, I used to teach human anatomy and physiology. So I'm very acquainted with the human body. I've dissected and cut up people before. Um, everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> uh, but I've, I used to teach cadaver labs and stuff, so I've had fun with this kind of thing. Anyway, let's take a couple of these really briefly. We can't do them all, but let me just show you a couple of the most common ones that people will mention. The appendix. They say the appendix, it's a leftover from evolution. You don't need it. You see this on TV shows. You see it, see it in conversations, and you hear it. No, you look up an anatomy physiology book today, a modern anatomy physiology book, it's going to say it's not a vestigial organ. It's actually a lymphoid organ. It's part of your lymphatic system. What's it do? It helps fight infections. It also harbors special bacteria to help you digest your food better. The appendix is not a wasteful leftover. It's a fully functional organ. Yes, you can live without it, but... You will not fight infections as well, and you will not digest certain uh, food because you're missing certain bacteria that harbor and live in that section. Look here. It says humans have vestigial organs. The fact that the appendix does not seem to serve a useful purpose today, so it is probable that our appendix is left over from a time during which our ancestors needed this organ to digest their food. That's what they explain in this book. That is not true. Biologist E. Uh, Hinnick challenged this whole thing about the appendix in uh, Creation and Evolution, published in 1966. He says, get this, apes possess an appendix. Apes do. Whereas the lesser intermediate relatives, the ones that came before apes in evolution, the lower apes, they don't have it. But then it appears again in still lower animals, like in possums. In other words, according to evolution, if it's no longer useful, get rid of it. But here we see low animals have an appendix, then they don't. Now we're talking about the human, the human chain here. In our ancestry as humans, these animals had an appendix. These didn't. These have an appendix. These didn't. These have an appendix. This doesn't make sense. Why would a thing keep rotating that it's useful, it's not useful? It's illogical. Talk about the coccyx. It's not a tail. It's an important anchor point for muscles. It holds your anus in place. You'd be in a bad situation sitting there right now without this. It makes up the floor of the entire pelvic cavity. Your organs sit on a floor. You remove the coccyx bone, you're going to have a hard time walking. You're going to have a very difficult time sitting. You're going to have a very difficult time digesting food and removing waste from your body. Um, not even going to go to trying to give childbirth. Of course, only half of us do that anyway. Thank God. How about the tonsils? Tonsils, they used to take these out. A hundred years ago, if you were prone to have like two or three sore throats in like a year or so, they immediately just took out your tonsils. How many of you still have your tonsils? Raise your hand. Okay. Some don't. They seldom take them out of people today. Why? It's part of the lymphatic system. We now know it's not a, le uh, a leftover of evolution. They fight infection and disease. They're very important in childhood. You ever read the, or read the book or watched the movie Cheaper by the Dozen? It used to be required reading in school. I don't know if it still is. Remember there's a whole section in there that they all have their tonsils removed? Why did all of a sudden... 
medical science in the 1920s, 1930s just started taking tonsils out because of Darwinian evolution. It's a leftover of evolution. We don't need it. Let's get rid of it. Starts getting infected, take it out. Now we know, no, that's not the right thing to do. The thymus gland. Most people don't even have talked to. What's a thymus gland? It's a small organ filled with T cells. T cells, part of you, most people are catching this because of COVID. They understand a little bit about the immune system more than they did three years ago. T cells fight microbes and foreign particles in your body. In infants, it's very important. It's very large as an infant. When you're born, your thymus is very large. You get smaller as you get older. In infants, it controls the development of the lymphatic system. Yet, according to these books and stuff, the thymus is a leftover of Darwinian evolution. I think not. The spleen. Well, you can live without a spleen. It's not desirable, but you can because the spleen is not a leftover of Darwinian evolution. It's an important organ because what it does is it recycles your red blood cells. God is really into recycling. He really is. It's not a discard. Okay, your blood cells only work for a few weeks. Get rid of them. No, let's recycle them. And your spleen does this, breaks them down so it can make new ones. It also makes white blood cells, helps fight infections and stuff, and other materials. There's other hormones and stuff and proteins that the, the spleen actually produces. You don't want to get rid of this unless you have to, because if you do get rid of your spleen, you're highly prone for more infections. It's not an evolutionary leftover. You starting to catch the plan here now? Our, vest our vestigial organs, solid proof of Darwinian evolution. This is what S.R. Skating wrote, a leading evolutionist. I'm going to give it to you from an evolutionist himself in his book called The Theory of Evolution. He says, quote, I conclude that vestigial organs provide no special evidence for the theory of evolution, unquote. And this is from one of the leaders in the field. Why do we still have people like this Bible teacher, not mocking him, not making fun of him. It's just he has been taught that this is part of evolution and it really damaged his faith. Simply put, the entire scenario of vestigial organs supporting Darwinian evolution contains numerous, serious, logical flaws, and in most cases has been proven to be scientifically untrue. Yet you're still going to see it in biology books. Why? Because they don't have much that they can really use to use for proof. There's not one inherited vestigial organ in the entire human body. Not one. Definitely no 96. Folks, it's very simple. Go back to what the Bible says. Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is God creating, knitting, putting something together, not starting a process and then walking away for millions of years to let it happen. That is not our God. Our Jesus, our Lord Jesus, he is here today. He interacts with us. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of us once we become Christians, and he is with us forever. Thank you, God, that you are always with us and will never forsake us. We, you are not a God that created some little creature and let it just run. No, you interact. You even came and lived with us. What's that? The whole doctrine that we have here in Christianity against, goes against Darwinian evolution. Father God, we thank you for this time.
I praise you, O oh God, creator God you are. How intricate, how beautifully you have put everything together. People say that they can't believe in you. They can believe in artists that have been dead for centuries, yet we can walk outside of this church and see trees and grass, and we can see nature, and it's, these are thus the brush marks from your brush of nature, showing your presence, just like an artist paints on a canvas and you can see the evidence of it. We see nature and we can see the evidence in the presence of you. Lord, I pray that you protect the minds of all of us, young and old, that we don't fall for the lives of Satan, particularly at this time when his power is really seeming to rise up and he is deceiving so many. Let us not fall for his, his lies, that we stay true to the word of God, which is the source of all truth. And we thank you and praise you, O oh God. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.